Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Mark Chapman, welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater with us as usual. Coming up today, we're going to discuss the rise of sport documentaries that pull back the curtain on the lives of professional athletes and attract new fans into watching live sports. So our guests are Christian Horner, team principal of the Red Bull Racing Formula One team, and they feature in the hugely successful Netflix series Drive to Survive. We'll also hear from Leo Perlman of Fullwell 73, who's produced multiple hours of TV and feature films, including Sunderland Till I Die and I Am Bolt. And also Murray Barnett will give us a commercial overview. He is a sports media rights expert with 26 West Sport. Roll cameras. Action. Formula One is open for business again. Good morning. Got to be able to block it all out and focus on... Kicking some ass. <laughs> you want an umbrella? Yeah, f- off. That would hurt my ego, you know. <laughs> So F1 is already one of the most watched sports globally and it has enjoyed a huge boost in popularity since featuring on the hugely successful Netflix series Drive to Survive. Christian Horner is team principal at Red Bull Racing and features heavily in the series. Matt caught up with him after last week's Mexican Grand Prix. Well, look, thanks very much for joining us, Christian. Before we sort of get into the kind of the meat of the interview where I want to talk about F1's renaissance might be too strong, but it certainly seems to be to be going really well. Can we just... Explain to our, our listeners who you are, how you got into the sport, a little bit of a little bit of uh, your your background, really. Yeah, sure. Look, I um, I started off in the sport initially as a driver. Um, you know, I started competing when I was twelve, racing in go karts, and then I moved into car racing. I won a scholarship from Renault. I went through the different categories: Formula Four, Formula Three, um, ending up in uh, Formula. What is now Formula 2 was Formula 3000 at the time and I was a test driver for Lotus Formula 1 team back in 1993 but uh, I decided that you know my talents in the in the cockpit were you know they were okay but they were nothing exceptional so but it was a sport that I loved and uh, and enjoyed so I started my own team in Formula 2 I drove for it for a year and then moved into into team management and you know, I won the championship with that team for 3 years in a row And then Red Bull asked me to join um, their Formula One team after they acquired Jaguar at the end of 2004. So I joined at the beginning of 2005, at the very beginning, and uh, I've been there ever since. So so man and boy then, Christian. I mean, you've you've really sort of come through the ranks, haven't you, in that sport, which which I think is really interesting because... uh, Certainly to me, it does seem as though it's 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 a sport for the very, very rich, for the very, very wealthy. 
you know, sometimes it can seem a little bit um, kind of corporate, a bit austere, you know, that it's sort of run by big, big corporations. But, but you know, you, you have organically come through the sport. So that can happen, does happen, and you're living proof of that. No, absolutely. I mean, I started started as a driver and, and then when I started my own team, you know, it was it was going doing everything i mean it was booking hotels it was washing the, you know the truck it was getting pizza for the mechanics you know in the evening it was doing the vat returns you know dealing with the sponsors it was you know it was all sorts so it was a great education it gives you a good insight when you've walked a mile in someone's shoes and you know what you know what the job entails well i'm sure you're going to tell me that that f1's always been amazing and 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 what what am i on about what renaissance but w- would it be fair? Do do you do you think it's fair if I say to you that F one does seem to be quite cool and hip at the moment, and you do seem to be having a bit of a moment? Yeah, I think. Look, I think a big part of that has been the whole Netflix phenomenon. You know that uh, that has, I think, taken Formula One to the masses. It's brought a whole new audience into Formula One. Yeah, you know, Formula One's always been strong. It's the most viewed sport outside of the Olympic Games and the Football World Cup. You know, on an annual basis and. But I think you know the whole Netflix thing has taken it to a new, um, a new phenomenon. Of course, you know the championship's been close and 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 tough this year. We've got a, one of the greatest you know championships that we've had in the last you know 25 years. So uh, you know with with Max Verstappen going up against Lewis Hamilton. So um, so so yeah, it's uh, it's great to see the sport in in you know in in rude health. Well, I'm glad you you mentioned the documentary because I do I want to get into that. So well, let's let's just dive in. It, it does seem amazing because you're right. F1 is is a long established sport. Does really really well. Has a serves yeah. this 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 very strong, vibrant sort of community that that you know are never going to not like F1. But it does appear to me that this documentary, this this well put together documentary, but you know it's, there's there's a lot of them about, has brought you to a new audience. I mean that that's yeah. a quite a remarkable thing, isn't it? That a sports doc can do that. It's incredible, to be honest with you. And I think it's engaged a much younger audience. Uh, it's like my 15-year-old daughter now thinks Formula One is cool, and so do all of her mates. Uh, and that's purely because of, you know, Netflix. Suddenly, you see some of the personalities, the drivers, the, the team principals. And of course, it's a TV show at the end of the day, but you know, it's based on based on reality. And it's had a phenomenal effect. So you know, we've seen. And what it's really opened up is, you know, the U.S. market is suddenly engaged in Formula One. You saw that at the race in Austin a, a week or so ago. Uh, and with the amount of races that, that the U.S. is now pushing for, you know, Miami next year, Las Vegas is pushing for a race. It's had a, an, an amazing effect on the sport. And I think with people being locked up the last 18 months, you know, the amount of content that's been being watched is significant. And obviously, Drive to Survive has been one of the most viewed documentaries on uh, on on netflix and how did it actually come around i mean i know you, you know you've been central to it from the beginning i think is it am i right in thinking we we we've done three seasons of it we're a fourth season is already well i guess it's yeah. based on this season right but you've been yeah. in it since the start you've been a you, you know you've been a sort of central character in it you know how did it happen you know how involved in it you know at the beginning were you you know, we, do you feel like you're a sort of showrunner, producer, or you, you know, you just, you're just you. He's just you being you. Well, the production company originally approached us to do something specifically on Red Bull, and um, you know, that was something that we were, we were, you know, interested to do. We thought it would give the fans an insight behind the scenes, and then, and then after having spoken with Formula One, um, you know, Netflix decided no, they wanted to do the whole series. I said, look, we're cool with that. 
Um, and uh, there were a couple of teams at the beginning that didn't want to get involved because you know they didn't see the value, they didn't see you know fiscally it wasn't a great you know it wasn't a great deal, um, and they were keen to do deals with you know I think Mercedes wanted to do something with Amazon and Ferrari just didn't want to get involved. But I think you know, we embraced it from the very beginning. We opened the doors. You know, the value of that has been significant. So, um, of course, they came to the party in season two. You know, the revenues that it's generating through commercial sponsorship now. Um, you know, we've brought in about five new partners, which I wouldn't say is directly attributable to Netflix, but it's certainly a contributing factor. Uh, you know, particularly with three of them being US-based. Look, I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that, to be honest. And I, I wonder if, you know, at the beginning, were you aware of, I'm trying to think of the timing now, I suppose it wouldn't have been quite, I think the time would have been a little bit off, but things like Sunderland Till I Die, I guess that was a little bit after, or maybe around the same time, certainly Last Dance was afterwards. But were you aware that, that sports documentaries yep. could could help? old-fashioned sport actual live sport there could be this sort of link between the two and you know one hand could wash the other yeah i think absolutely i think look you know formula one has been so paranoid about not giving away any secrets that to suddenly peel back the you know the the the, the curtain and have a look behind the scenes it's a fascinating story to tell um and i think you know we were early on recognized that the power of that that it you know, for it to engage with um, with a new audience, that you don't have to be a die-hard fan. You know, there's some great characters and personalities, and people become attached to the personalities, or um, you know, that aren't prevalent um, when you just turn on the race on a Sunday afternoon. So it it just gives a different insight. And of course, you know, Formula One is a soap opera. At the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of competition. There's some big characters. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I think it intrigues people um, to see the world that you know we operate in. You mentioned personalities, and that is something that we're we're we're, we're on this show are talking more and more about now. As I say, we often talk about football and just how the, the stars, the, the players, are now they have bigger brands, they're bigger social media brands yeah. in their clubs. And, you know, you see it in Olympic sport, you see it in individual sports like tennis and golf as well, that it's the individual. And that's how, you know, large companies like Nike and Adidas are starting to kind of package themselves as well. You know, it's about the individual. Do do you think that has F1 been sort of kind of slow to realise that? Or do you think F1's sort of part of that realisation? Because just whenever I've thought about F1, I... Yeah, the, the teams, it's not like football, is it? You know, you, maybe maybe I'm wrong. You know, do you think there are passionate Red Bull fans or do you think there are passionate Match Verstappen fans? I think there are teams that, you know, that we see follow the brand, that follow the team, you know, the team supporters. But of course, the drivers are the stars. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the leading performers. You see it in Mexico here this weekend. You know, the support for Checo Perez, unbelievable. You know, you see it in Zandvoort for Max Verstappen. You know, the whole the whole um, uh, you know crowd pretty much in orange um, and and but you know you get you do get your your fans that support the teams but the drivers are the you know they're they're the they're the stars and um, uh, you know Red Bull the, the different teams have different characters you know Ferrari have got the history the prestige you know Red Bull are the, the, the you know we're relatively newcomers we play our music loud we're a bit maverick a bit more rock and roll about the way we go about things perhaps and then you've got some of the old guard you know, McLarens and Williams and, 
and then the corporateness of Mercedes. So you've got different characters of teams. Um, and I think people engage with, you know, the Red Bull brand, the Red Bull philosophy, the way we go about our business. And that's why I think I think we're the most supported team in Formula One. That's really interesting. And and, and going back to your point about the States, because that's something that, that is readily apparent to me. I mean, I remember many years ago, I don't know, sort of 10, 15, maybe even longer uh, mm. ago, the F1 was always talking about trying to break the States. And, you know, it was a, yeah. you know, an attempt to sort of put Grand Prix on in Detroit and, you know, and other places, Indianapolis. And it, it, it never, it always seemed to, the F1 was frankly trying a bit too hard. And I did wonder if, you know, the kind of the American motorsport fan would ever really get European style racing. But I'm wrong. I mean, you know, yeah. I've, I saw the pictures of Austin and I, I frankly could, couldn't really believe them. They were, they were remarkable. How has that happened? Yeah, no, look, and I think look, the US loves sport, but I think when you, when you look at the way they present sport, it's very different to European sport. It's, a, it's entertainment, you know, and, and people go to sport to have a good time. And I think the owners of Formula One, you know, Liberty Media now, they're bringing that US way of going, you know, bringing entertainment to sport. So it's fun, it's action, it's, there's music, there's, there's, there's always something, something going on that crescendos with the, you know, the race itself. And I think that, um, you know, being able to engage the fans, get the fans closer to the action, you know, lifting the curtain on, on digital media and content and being able to get that out there, I think are all things that the, the, the new owners have, um, you know, focused on. And you can see that's engaging you know, the the American public. I mean, we don't have an American driver in the field. Imagine when we get a competitive American, you know, it'll go bananas. So, um, and that's only a matter of time. And I think there's this intrigue about, you know, the mystique of Formula One as well, you know, that has an appeal. And certainly I, I've never seen anything like Austin. Um, you know, I think it was the, the, the highest attended a race, potentially it broke a new record. And then we see Mexico, the kind, I think they could have sold out, you know, twice. You know, Miami's already sold out, so which is fantastic. And then you got, you know, the the historic races like Silverstone, which again, huge support, huge following. It's great to see that Formula One has got that that popularity. And I think the great thing this year is we've got an on-track battle between two of the best drivers of their generations. And I think um, I think that that's been a, a phenomenal storyline as a backdrop because at the end of the day, it's. You know, it's about the content. You can you can have all the um, the build up that you like, but if the if the product doesn't deliver, you're not going to be able to retain audiences. Whereas I think the product has delivered this year, and that's why the audience is growing. It's engaging, and you know, it's the biggest winner is Formula One. So, so apart from the audience getting a bit more American and a bit bigger, do you think it's changing in any other way? Do you feel that your sport is becoming, dare I say, more diverse? I mean, you've you mentioned, you know, your your two main protagonists. You know, one of them is Lewis Hamilton, you know, who is yeah. this sort of fantastic champion, I think, for mm-hmm. your sport, but for, for, you know, for black athletes. Do you, yeah. do, you, do you feel that your sport is going to get more diverse? Yeah, definitely. And I think look, Lewis has done a great thing on shining a spotlight on that. And I think that, um, you know, teams are, are very much engaging in that. You know, we're looking at really, we've always had a policy of investing in youth, whether it's drivers or engineers and so on. And, and we're really you know getting behind that and becoming much more diverse and i think the attraction of formula one is you know the the the, the catch pool for, for you know of talent is is unbelievable um and you know we're seeing a more diverse um uh, you know cross-section not just within red bull but i think across the whole industry i know he's not your driver and you've got a star of your own and you've had 
stars before and Formula One's had stars before. But do you think Formula One will will take a hit? Will will miss Lewis? You know, when he when he when he chooses to retire. Well, I think. Look, he's a he's a great champion. He's brought a spotlight on Formula One. But there's a great great group of young talent coming through. You've got Max. You've got the Lando Norrises. You've got. Um, uh, you know George Russell looking looking really promising. Charles Leclerc. There's a great crop of youngsters, and it's interesting to see in a recent poll that you know Max was voted the most popular driver in Formula One, followed by Lando Norris and then Lewis. So you know ultimately the sport is bigger than than an individual. But uh, you know Lewis has been a you know is a great champion, and you know really has brought a a different. Um, uh, you know, he's put Formula One in places that it wouldn't have traditionally have been with, you know, some of the things that he uh, engages in. Well, I mean, I massively appreciate your time because you're, you're in between races here. You're off to Brazil. How exciting is this? Well, you know, this is this is the glamour, isn't it? This is this is that wonderful sport where you get to go to all these exciting places. Look, we don't do we, even when we talk about football, we don't really talk about tactics. So I'm not going to start talking to you about you know engines and which track suits. Which yeah. team better? Than, but I'm I am going to ask you for a prediction. Was it four races left? Yeah, four races ago. So there's look, yeah. there's a you know we're, we're 19 points ahead and there's 107 available. So it's it, it's all to play for. And you know we've we've worked hard to get ourselves into this position. I mean it's seven years since we've been fighting for a chance. Since anybody has been fighting for a champion, such has been the dominance of Mercedes and and Lewis. So you know we're we're loving the fight. Um, and, and, you know, there's a real determination in the team to, you know, get this one over the line in, in Abu Dhabi. So, but it's, you know, they, they're not going to give it up easy, that's for sure. So uh, um, there's four exciting races to come, but, you know, we're looking forward to it. It would make for a pretty good finale to whatever it is, season three or four, if it, if it, did, if it did get to the last race, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, I think the whole thing's building up to a great crescendo. And unfortunately, I think for all our blood pressure, it's going to go to the last race. You know, we've just got to keep doing what we're doing and um, I think season four will be one not to miss. Christian Horner there with Matt. Coming up next, we'll talk with one of the executive producers of another successful sports documentary on Netflix, Leo Perlman from Fullwell 73. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So we've heard from Christian Horner at Red Bull about how the Netflix series Drive to Survive showcased the excitement of F1 to a new audience, particularly in the US. Our next guest is one of the exec producers that brought a very different story to Netflix, the story of a football club from the northeast of England, far removed from the glamour of the Premier League in Sunderland till I die. When I come to Sunderland, I say pride, passion and loyalty. This is the most intense crowd of the whole country. 
terrifying. The football club being sustainable is integral to the happiness of the entire city. This is what stops people crying in church. If we're going to get this club turned around, it has to be done now. So we're joined by Leo Perlman of Fullwell 73, one of the exec producers of Sunderland Till I Die, and a raft of other TV and film hits, including I Am Bolt and The Class of 92. Leo, thanks for joining us. Are we in a peak period, do you think, for sport documentaries? And if so, why? Absolutely. I think we're on like peak capacity of uh, sports documentaries and content of this nature. And I think we've been in that place for probably the last two or three years. Why, I think, is because as simply as sport offers the most compelling, real narrative arcs and incredible characters uh, of any genre out there, worlds which you can't write, you couldn't create. And it seems never-ending, the stories that are available out there, whether it be the big pieces of IP around Michael Jordan, for example, and The Last Dance, or the less known IP, like Sunderland Till I Die, for example. I quite like your use of the word real in that, which I, which I really like, like to focus on, because mm-hmm. you will always want it to be real. Yes. The people that you film and are involved with sometimes might not want... Might have won everything. Yep. I suppose not only real, genuine. That's the other thing I mean. Yeah, I think that's a, a balance and a conversation and a process that every filmmaker who works in documentary, regardless of whether it be sport, music, or, or true crime, has to has to go through. And I think that, well, I, I'll tell you how we view it. I can't tell you how anyone else does. You're never going to show every second, every moment of a of a legacy career or when you're doing an access doc every moment possibly captured it's not it's not doable you you leave a season following a club like Juventus with you know 2000 hours of footage and you end up putting out 6 hours of content so i think that the the challenge is uh, as filmmakers or content creators can you by the end of the project have you told a genuine story of that club or that individual have you captured their essence? Um, which sounds a bit wanky, but I, I guess that's that's the best way to put it. And if you can answer yes, then I think that you can look in the mirror and say, as a documentarian, you did a good job. Uh, if you've constructed something from uh, and told a story that at its heart isn't genuine, then I think that's something different. Leo, I was just wondering about, about simply about Sunderland Till I Die, because it's the one that crops up a lot when I talk to people who are sort of in this space and it came up quite a few times in um, the whole Wrexham story. I mean, one in the it the, the program actually strongly influenced the decision to buy the club. I mean, that's 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 really where it went back to. Yeah. You know, someone talking to someone else about this program. Someone then going, "Oh wow, what an amazing mm-hmm. program! Why don't we do this?" And then the making of the documentary being wrapped up in the purchase of the club. And it was really interesting to hear Ryan Reynolds yeah. talk about that when he met the press a couple of weeks ago and he stressed, you know, they, you know, why, why Wrexham? Why football? Why are you here? And he said stories. It's about the story. Yeah. I'm just, you know, are you, I mean, do you, are, you, are you proud? I mean, how does that make you feel that, that 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 show really captured not just Ryan Reynolds, but people everywhere? Well, I think what captured people with that particular show was that it, it, it followed a club who was, just a bit shit. And, <laughs> and, and, and I say that as a Sunderland fan, so I feel very comfortable saying that. Because while the All or Nothings offer, and we've made one, while the All or Nothings offer amazing sound bites, incredible moments, you're never going to beat some of those moments with Pep or Jose 
from the Man City and the Spurs ones. They're great YouTube clips. But I kind of challenge anyone to sit through a full 10 hours or binge watch that series because ultimately, as a sports fan, and 99.9% of sports fans, whether you're a fan of basketball, ice hockey, football, or any other sport, are pretty much used to disappointment along, or entirely along the way. You have 99% is disappointment, 1% of these occasional moments of, of happiness or joy, and they keep you going for the next however long until that next moment of happiness comes along. When you watch an all or nothing, it's like, okay, genu- generally this club wins everything, scores loads of goals, and everyone has a great time. That's not real life. That's not how we experience sport. Suddenly Until I Die was a mirror. It, everyone looked at that film, watched it, and was like, I know how those fans feel. And I think that's why it connected. Um, it's interesting because it, 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 it's not an aspirational piece. And most sports documentaries are that. It's a, it's a real piece. Uh, and I think that's why, that's why you know, it connected with people in the way that it did. In your first answer, you, I think you said we, we're possibly at peak Sports doc. I mean, it, it does feel that way a little bit. Is there a danger that we might be tipping over the peak? Well, I think we probably already have. I mean, if you go onto Amazon and look at the kind of documentaries, not that they're making, but that they're buying, there are some one-off films about sportsmen and particular footballers that we look at and go, who on earth thought that was a good idea? And not that those sportsmen aren't interesting, but why at this point in their career? What have they achieved to make a doc at this point? So yeah, I think we probably have tipped over. But what it does mean is that we're getting access or getting an insight into some incredible worlds and incredible lives. And you have choice. You can choose not to watch the documentary on Sun, for example. I don't know why I picked him out in particular, but on Amazon yesterday when I was flicking through, I was like, really? Someone's made that documentary? So you can choose not to watch that and, and, and flick through and find that piece that you really want to. So I still think it's a positive. But yeah, we are being, the market is being flooded with, with sports documentaries and films. So much so that companies are being set up purely as rights holders to go and acquire rights to sports individuals and franchises for at some point in the future to create the content. That's not, uh, that's not something that we were seeing even 12 months ago. When you go and, and, and meet people to talk about documentaries like this, what, what, what is their, like the Sunderland one, but... What what are their expectations? What do they always see as the benefits to them? Because it can't just be financial. Well, if it is just financial, then that's a very difficult conversation to have um, and not one that, that for us ever ends in a deal. Someone's got to have more of a reason. We like to, I, I, I don't know how, what, how other people go about it, but certainly from our perspective, a film either needs to be a legitimate legacy piece And by that, I mean, there might have been five films previously made about that individual, that team or that subject. But if we're going to make it, it's going to be the last one that's ever made. Best example of that being for the class of 92. Only two years before we made the class of 92, Man United TV had made the class of 92. That didn't bother us because it wasn't a very good film. So we decided that there was still space to make the best version of that film. And I think we achieved that. Similarly with Usain Bolt, I can't see someone coming along and making another Bolt film. And if they do, it it can't really cover any more than we did. Um, So that's really our our starting point always. It's do you want something that your kids, grandkids and generations to come are going to be able to point at and see? And this is your story. This is your legacy. If that works, if that works, then that's a great starting point. For clubs, obviously, that's not the case. For clubs, it's about brand building. The, 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 The kind of hurdle you have to get over is to explain to them that the best type of brand building shows the genuine truth, the actual story. 
if you want to make a puff piece, and I'll give the example of the Juventus three-parter that was on Netflix, um, which was, I think it was an IMG Netflix kind of Juve production. And we were very open and honest with Juventus and with Amazon when they first approached us. And we said, look, this has been done on Netflix already. And in our opinion, done really badly. You know, it was a puff piece. It was a celebration, but without any of the insight. Um, if that's the kind of thing that you require again, then we're the wrong company to do it. If you want to do a proper access piece where we can get behind the scenes and dig in, we'd love to. Um, so that's that's our approach. And, and you learn very quickly uh, whether someone is, is in tune with that or not. But we're also fair as well. You know, for example, we'll always say to someone, you know, we're not trying to air your dirty laundry. We're not panorama. So if there's a particular topic, if there's a particular one-off subject that you say, look, this is off the table. I will not talk about it. We always say we need to have that conversation up front and we can decide whether we can still legitimately make a piece of content. And we've had that conversation a number of times with people. Um, so it's a balance. You have They have to trust you. You have to trust them. I was telling Matt earlier that uh, there are a couple of instances in, in sports documentaries which I think highlight um, how you don't need access to everything, but you have to make sure you keep the genuine moments. And one was the... I'm not sure the all or nothings now when it comes to the NFL are revealing anything different. And I find them a bit kind of formulate, but the early ones, the Arizona Cardinals and then the Rams were amazing documentaries. And the Rams one, Jeff Fisher, the head coach of the Rams was fired halfway through the season. Incredible. Wasn't Incredible. it? And you, but you didn't see the conversation of him being fired because I don't think anybody in their right mind would expect cameras to be in that room. But what you did yeah. see was him explaining to his players that he'd been fired mm-hmm. and there were tears. And, yeah. and, and that's the genuine side that, that I think everyone tries to capture. The other is in the, in the test, the Australian cricket series on Amazon, which is a brilliant documentary where uh, on the tour of England, Justin Langer, the head coach goes berserk at one point and kicks a bin over in anger at what happened. I think it might've been the Headingley test, but then goes back and picks all the rubbish up and puts it back in the bin. And I think they had a conversation with Justin to say, you actually come out of that very well. I know you've had the anger, but but actually that little detail of you putting the rubbish back is the kind of thing that will endear you to people and we want to put in. Yes. And I think that, that, that is exactly the point. I think what we always say is if something happens during the course of filming in this access doc, if something happens that your, your gut reaction instantly straight away is turn the cameras off, don't even want to see this. You have to think about how that's going to be portrayed in the press, not the cameras being turned off, but the story. So, for example, in Sunderland season one, when we had the incident with the player who was found to be drink driving during a match, crashed his car into three or four cars. We had long conversations at the time with the club and the individual. We said, look, the press is going to tear you apart. They're going to hammer you. But just keep in mind. This documentary series will come out six to nine months, 12 months after the incident happened, right? You have an opportunity to put on record right now in this documentary, whatever it is that you genuinely want to say. It's not going to come out now. No one's going to see it right now. But in six months, nine months time, that's your chance to address it while there's no hysteria. If you choose not to, what's going to happen is the press are going to watch the documentary and say, why didn't you put in the sequence? Why didn't you put anything about the guy who smashed the car up? And they're going to talk about it in negative terms. You have a chance to get ahead of the story in the long term. And we always explain that. So you've, you've got to go against your, you know, your intuitive nature, which is to pull the curtains closed when something bad happens. And we're going, no, 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 open them up. Do the opposite. Is there a danger within, the, within this market now of, um, 
and you've talked about companies who are buying up rights already. Uh, and we're going to hear from a, a consultant a little bit later on on the pod. Is there a danger of uh, athletes, organisations, sports controlling their own market so much that the editorial disappears? Yes, but audiences are super smart, um, instinctively smart. And so when you do that, you will generally get far more negative reaction than positive. It's interesting because you have to ask the question, and we, we talk about this quite a lot, the new generation or the new consumer of sports content are not the first generation sports fans. By that, I mean, they're not the fans who go to games. That's not who the buyers are trying to attract. They're not even trying to attract the casual fan based in the UK, the US or wherever else. They're going after a new generation of fans who don't support a club. They support players. They'll follow Cristiano Ronaldo, Neymar, Messi, wherever they go. That's what they're bothered about. They couldn't care less what the Man United result is any more than the Barcelona or Real Madrid result. So I guess the question for buyers is, are they targeting those consumers? In which case, there's a pretty good argument that they could just create puff piece behind the scenes content and not worry about really making great narrative structure, narrative arcs. Or are they going after legacy fans, so to speak? Um, and that's a, that's a challenge for, for filmmakers. So I would say that for a newer generation of investors into this space, they are probably hedging their bets and saying, well, as long as we control the rights and control the narrative, we can tick both boxes. We can give a polished piece of PR content that the player doesn't mind getting out there. And these younger generation of fans don't really care. They don't want to see behind the scenes. They just want more and more. And look, that's, that's kind of depressing for people like me. Um, and me. Probably people like you guys <laughs> yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, you guys as well, who, who would who just want to see the real story. Um, but but that's the challenge. That's definitely the challenge at the moment. Lee, I've got two two quick questions. I'm going to ask them one at a time, though, because I don't want okay. to sort of spoil the second one. The, the first is sort of kind of a geeky one. It, it, I'm often often think about it when I write about the sort of explosion of TV rights and the and the rise mm. of the Premier League in general, and 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 the fact that there was a sort of technological part of that story that the Premier League came along at a key time in just our ability to film and distribute live sports. I'm wondering if this sort of kind of this golden age of sports docs is, is, is at all to do with like new mics and new cameras and just you, your ability to get in and, and just gather stuff quickly and cheaply. It's mostly down to two factors. One, the proliferation of new platforms. So the, the drive and demand for content has spread its tentacles in all directions, sport being an obvious one. Um, and also that sportsmen are from a, a from that generation who understand or or appreciate that they need to market and create a brand around them. The U.S. has been doing it for years. They've understood it for a generation. We're only now catching up. So it's interesting when you go into clubs now. We're at this kind of weird moment in time where you go into a football club or, or a basketball team or a baseball team. And half of the players are that older generation who come from a background of this is, this is our world and there is always a curtain down and we don't let anyone in here. To the other half who are, okay, I have a career outside of this. I'm a footballer and I'm also a brand and I have a, you know, a, a, a sunglasses brand and I've got a you know, trainer's brand. I've got all these other things going on around me. So while I need to perform on the pitch, I also need to spend 50% of my time worrying about how I, the narrative around me. 
They love the cameras being there. They understand it. We had it with Sunderland Till I Die. The older players who control the dressing room, so to speak, they absolutely hated us being there. They couldn't stand it. And interestingly enough, they used it as an excuse whenever anything went wrong. The younger generation welcomed it. Like, this is how I get, you know, some of them, this is how I get my move away. For others, this is how I increase my profile. It's a really interesting moment in time. A final one as well, because, the, you know, as myself and Matt say many times on this, we have people who listen in, in different countries around the world and, and in different markets. You've, you've kind of already spoken about the difference in the U.S., market is is that the ideal market to work in because as you say they are a generation ahead of us in a way because they completely understand the the theory and process of access but then at the same time all american sportsmen are uh are, are also manicured in that way you know they don't give the sky sports answer but they understand how to give the access dog answer so i actually think the most interesting space for me over the next three to five years is going to be other countries that have um, that have these great sports stories to tell that haven't yet opened their doors. Number one on my list, personally, I would love to do something about the uh, a, 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 within a Russian football team. I would absolutely love to do that. I think that I think that kind of space is the next frontier. There are, there are a lot of interesting stories in Eastern Europe, aren't there? I mean, there mm, I mean. really are. I mean, you mentioned Russia, but. Even Shakhtar and and where they play FC Sheriff, yeah. who are in the Champions League at the moment, and people keep going on about them being a this sort of underdog side. But actually, if you dig into FC Sheriff and their money, that they're not a, mm. a minnow from Moldova. I mean, there's loads of. I mean, the hoops you would have to jump through though would be huge. I would imagine. Yeah, it's it's probably going to be a little dangerous for the filmmakers. But I, I'm I'm not a filmmaker. I, I just I just put the deal together. So, yeah. <laughs> Deal done. Away you go. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Have fun in Azerbaijan for the next six months. <laughs> Fascinated to talk to you, Leah. Thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate giving us your Thanks time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
Our next guest will help us take a deeper look at the influence of sports documentaries from a commercial perspective. Murray Barnett, founder of sports consultancy 26 West Sports. He's worked for sports leagues, governing bodies, media companies and sports marketing agencies, uh, including F1, the NBA, World Rugby and ESPN. Murray, first of all, I suppose, we've heard from Christian Horner about how important the documentary has been to F1. Can a sport not an organisation, but a sport, put a commercial value on documentaries? I think it's difficult to look at it sort of in sort of a direct linear fashion or, or, or in and of itself. But I think the halo it creates around the sport is just incredible. And, you know, Drive to Survive is probably the poster child for what it can do for, for a sport. I mean, you look at even just ESPN as a broadcaster in the US. In 2018, it had sort of roughly sort of 547,000 viewers for a Formula One race. At the start of 2021, that was already up to a million. And that includes some interesting stats around things like uh, female race attendance being up 30%, 40% increase in attendees at the Austin Grand Prix in the US. And that's looking at just the impact on somewhere like the US. Um, it's been widely reported in the market, in the sort of sports business market, that Formula One are going uh, out to tender on their US rights very soon. And the expectation is that there'll be, you know, very substantial increase. And that a lot of that can be can be attributed to the sort of drive to survive effect, if you like. Are we saying then that maybe from both sides of the equation, from a broadcaster or a platform side, but also from a sport side, that just live sport coverage is not enough anymore? I think it depends on what your objectives are. So Formula One very early on in sort of Liberty Media's ownership, having taken over from Bernie Eccleston, you know, a few years ago, decided that there was a huge opportunity to grow the audience. And so they went into everything that they did very much with that strategy. Documentaries or Drive to Survive was a sort of a key element of that. But, you know, as you know, it's it's incredibly it's there's a certain amount of alchemy involved in terms of getting the right production company, uh, the, the right people involved, the, the right support behind it, the right buy in from the different audiences. And, you know, Formula One kind of struck gold with both having, you know, Box to Box as an amazing production company with a strong history of doing sports documentaries, then also catching the sort of COVID wave, if that's not a horrible way of putting it. Uh, of you know people staying at home and, and watching a lot more and you know my personal opinion is that when you look at Last Dance you know the the um, the Michael Jordan sort of documentary yeah. that was on Netflix that was a great hors d'oeuvre if you like to then create a marketplace for Drive to Survive and or create the appetite for Drive to Survive and so you know I think that there is definitely an upswing at the moment but to get back to your question I I think it depends very much on what your objectives are at the beginning. And not only that, it's very different for different sports. You know, I would argue that football doesn't actually need any sports documentaries because they either come orga organically or because people are actually very familiar with all of those, um, you know, all, all, all of the players and, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. Whereas, you know, you look at some of the great sports documentaries, whether that's, you know, Touching the Void, Free Solo, or Closer to the Edge about the Isle of Man TT, these all share in common the fact that they're sports which a lot of people don't necessarily know a lot about. And I think that was the thesis with Formula One is that if only people were more exposed to the inner workings of Formula One, that they would become fans. And that's largely proven to be successful. Well, I think you make a really good point about 
dare I say, sort of the more niche sports. And there's just so much more to learn about them. And I think about nearly all my favourite documentary sports documentaries have been about sports that I didn't know such a great deal about. And, and I was introduced to them through through these sort of fascinating behind the scenes looks. However, I don't know if it's just football being football and being unbelievably greedy, spotting up opportunity and saying, yeah, we'll have some of that. What What is the big thing in the industry right now? It is the number of football projects out there. Is is there a danger of, of football just trampling over this and, and spoiling it? I think the marketplace has grown immensely. And, and I think just because documentaries are made doesn't necessarily mean that they're all good or that they're all going to make money or achieve the objectives that they want. Because most of the time, the documentaries, I would argue, are divided into two groups. They're either passion projects, which you know people will do anything to just get it made, or there are filmmakers who have genuinely found an interesting story or an interesting angle that they think is going to uh, really resonate. Because I would argue that the best sports documentaries are actually not about sports at all. They're about human drama and uh, the the interrelationship we have with each other and the nature of fandom and, you know, those kind of things rather than sort of sports per se. And therefore, they're much more than... You know, perhaps even was calling them sports documentaries is almost the wrong terminology. Well, I mean, this is a, probably a very a tough one to to answer, and and, and feel free to swerve it and and, and answer it in any, in any way you like. <laughs> but, I'm, but I mean, it does it does appear that that we are in this sort of golden age. Whether golden age is a horrible cliche of sports documentaries, I, I'm just wondering why is it is it is it is it the technology? You know, better mics, better cameras. Is it is it that Live rights are really expensive, and we've got loads of content providers that that, that are desperate to fill their schedules. Is it is it that fans are, won't watch ninety minutes or three hours of a baseball game or whatever it is? What 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 are the key drivers of this? There's an awful lot of strands to what you've just said. In my uh, focus group of one, <laughs> i.e., my fourteen year old at home, I can say that yeah, uh, the, the, the short form is not necessarily something which is uh, the only thing that they watch. You know, he sat down and w- has watched a number of sports documentaries. I mean, he's massively into rowing at the moment. So he's been watching everything relating to rowing that he can find on YouTube or, you know, wherever it is. And they're all long form documentaries. It's all about creating compelling content. And I think the only reason why when you talk about documentaries that that, that short form is better is because the story doesn't justify a longer a longer term. As to why it's the golden age of documentaries, I think there's a few things for that. One is... I'm going to plug, you know, somebody that I worked for previously, as did Chappers, which is ESPN, who way back when spent and invested a lot of money in creating some very high quality sports documentaries that were called 30 for 30. And I think those really opened people's eyes as to what could be done with documentaries and how to take them from just being about sports to sort of transcending the sports um, medium. And the sort of the, the poster child for that was one called OJ Made in America, which is very much looking at the OJ Simpson story in the context of, you know, American society. And so I think that that really helped us be a catalyst for getting sort of creative people and, and the, the wider public interested in looking at uh, at what sports documentaries could could be about, but I also think it's also a sheer factor of the amount of content that's available. You know, you look at the Last Dance with Michael Jordan; that was sort of the exception rather than the rule, where they had something like four hundred hours of behind the scenes footage that had been stored away. I think if you fast forward to sort of the last five years, the amount of content that you can create 
through uh, even user-generated content as well as sort of professionally produced content is just immense. Um, as a sort of an aside, I, I saw recently that The Cure created a whole uh, concert film that was made purely of user-generated content. And that's just it talks about how much content there is available out there. And I think that content and the, and the, and the insatiable appetite for understanding the stories behind the stories and the behind the scenes content means that, you know, people are much more interested in that. Are they going to become harder to make, do you think? Are they, are people going to, because people have seen that they have been successful, will people ask for more to be involved, whether that's financially or control, and therefore end up sort of killing it, really? Well, I mean, what a great question, because, you know, for all of the plaudits that were lauded on The Last Dance... Uh, if you watched it very carefully, you'll see that it was actually produced by Michael Jordan's production company. And, you know, he'd been asked over the last 20 years or ever since he retired uh, to do a documentary series about him. And it's no accident that when LeBron James wins the, wins the title with the Lakers, the next day he announced that he's finally reached agreement to do a story of his life because, you know, all, all top athletes have egos and they and he wanted to make sure that his place was cemented on the on the summit of the greatest ever basketball players. And so that's an example of it's not objective and it was very strategic as to why it came out when. And so he was probably less concerned about making top dollar out of it as he's the first ever billion dollar sports star on the planet. I think that there are others that will be more that will see it more as a linear thing in terms of just about making money. But I think the great thing about sports is it's so rich in stories that it doesn't really matter. There'll always be an opportunity to create a story about something. If somebody comes along and says, actually, to create uh, the, the definitive David Beckham story, David wants 50 million quid and that's too much money, you'll be able to find somebody else where you can do an amazing story about them and there'll always be new and different things, which you uh, different angles that you can take on it. So a uh, long-winded way of saying... I think there'll always be stories to tell. There'll always be people that want to tell the stories and there'll be opportunities regardless of the financial cost to continue creating great sports documentaries. I mean, you've worked with a, a variety of leagues and a variety of governing bodies. If British ice hockey, off the top of my head, British ice hockey came to you and said, we're thinking about a, a behind the scenes, all the teams, the British League, etc., six-part documentary for whatever streaming service it would be, would you advise them to do it and say, have no control over it, warts and all, because that is what's going to attract people? Well, I don't think any of the documentaries that I've seen are warts and all if they're, if they're giving behind the scenes. You know, even Drive to Survive has a fair amount of editorial control on it. I mean, interestingly enough, and I don't think I'm sort of breaking any confidences Final Cut was with for Drive to Survive was with Box to Box, but with input from Formula One. And also to Box to Box as the producers were well aware that if they put stuff in there that was that was controversial, it was going to make it more difficult for them to film in certain restricted areas and get the required sort of access to drivers and team personnel if they didn't represent them in in, in a fair and balanced way. And so uh, to get back to your example, I think you, it has to be a partnership between the, the producer and the league. 
uh, and have a clear clarity of purpose about what it is that you want to do. I mean, there is always the argument to say that if you know a small federation or a small organization wanted to do it and it wanted it to really resonate, the more extreme it gets, the the the, the more chance it has of you know punching above its weight, so to speak. So, you know, I, I guess it depends a little bit on your objectives. Murray, I was, I was, when you were talking about, well, when we were all talking about Drives to, to Survive and the impact it's had on the US audience in, in the States, and, and Christian Horner talks a lot about that. It reminded me of, of, of a story I did a few weeks ago about Ted Lasso uh, and the impact that's had on, on, I wouldn't say breaking America, but it certainly helped. It certainly helped boost Premier League's profile. In, in the States, a really opportune moment because it's trying to sell its US TV rights right now. And, and, and one of the little deals the Premier League did was they, they agreed the show can use Premier League archive, right? And, and for this privilege, the Premier League managed to, managed to get about half a million. But when we start to think about this, why they should be handing that away for free. What an amazing advert. Are, are, are documentary makers, program makers going to start saying, Wait a minute, this, this relationship is a bit weird. I've massively boosted your profile. Christian Horner's gained five sponsors. Why am I paying you money? You should be paying me. Well, one of the reasons why the Premier League is the Premier League and why Formula One is Formula One is because they don't give anything away for free. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> I mean, I, I agree with your point. Uh, I, I think there are two kinds of ways in which you approach these documentaries, I think, which is, you know, whether it's more of a transactional thing or whether it's more of a partnership thing. And, you know, often that can be determined by who's behind it. So in the case of something like Last Dance, you know, Last Dance was actually uh, agreed with Netflix before Disney launched ESPN Plus uh, and Disney Plus. I suspect if it was today's world, as a broadcaster of the NBA and as a rights holder, that that would not go on Netflix now. It would be something that would sit only on Disney Plus and ESPN Plus exclusively. And therefore, that changes the dynamic a little bit about where the value transfer sits. And I think you'll see a lot more of those kind of documentaries at the kind of sort of top end, if you like, where it becomes more of a, I hate to use the word, synergistic relationship about, you know, who's actually broadcasting it and where the value transfer happens. So, you could argue that maybe one of the reasons why Ted Lasso had to pay for uh, Premier League footage is because it's on Apple Plus and not on Sky Atlantic or something like that. And that maybe the, the, the value exchange would have been quite different if it had been more aligned with the broadcast partners of Premier League. Murray, it's fa- fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for, uh, for coming on uh, and giving us your insight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Catch you soon. Thank you. That's it. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, you can head to theathletic.com slash footballpod for a 33% discount off the price of an annual subscription. And I'm back on Monday for The Athletic Football Podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.